there's so much pressure on us, not only as a small company in a very, very competitive environment, but, you know, understanding that we almost carry the weight of the firms that came before us. That was Lamont Hatcher, the CEO at AIS, talking about his journey to leadership of his own tech business, managing people, and how he uses his diverse network to recruit qualified diverse talent that maintains a culture of excellence. And this is IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. This podcast is brought to you by Cummins Inc. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining me on the fifth episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with yours truly, Angela B. Freeman. On our previous episode, we've been talking with female entrepreneurs focusing in different business genres, including venture capital, construction, STEM, and tech. And today we're switching that up just a bit with our first male guest on the Freedom Forum, Lamont Hatcher. Lamont is Chief Executive Officer and founder of Apex Infinite Solutions, or AIS, an Indianapolis-based IT consulting strategy and security company that provides strategic solutions to help large and small businesses achieve their business goals. In June of 2022, so next year, Lamont will have been the CEO of AIS for 10 years after having gained significant tech experience as a network engineer, VP of technology, and IT director at several other corporate organizations. In 2020, AIS was recognized by the IBJ as being number six of 25 of Central Indiana's fastest growing companies by revenue growth. And in that same year, Lamont was recognized by women in high tech as a diversity, equity, and inclusion champion receiving their inaugural Operation All Male Allies Award. Accordingly, I'm super pleased and excited to welcome Lamont Hatcher as my inaugural male guest to the Freedom Forum. Welcome, Lamont. How are you? I'm okay. Thanks for having me here, Angela. I'm so excited to have you here, Lamont. It's always awesome to have an opportunity to speak with you. And I, I want, want to start off by having you tell our listeners a bit about you, your educational and professional background, and any other factors that led you to becoming an entrepreneur who owns your own technology business. So I am a Indiana native, Ben Davis High School, high school West Side of Indianapolis, um, IU Bloomington, degree in informatics. Um, most recently, Indiana Wesleyan went and got another degree in uh, business administration. Uh, started this company in 2012. We now have uh, about 25 employees pretty much spread out over the eastern half of the country. In terms of the entrepreneurial path, I guess you'd say, I've been really blessed um, over my career from a mentorship perspective um, in that I've always had really good people around me. And it's just so happened that a lot of those people were either the sole owners of the organization or maybe partners in the organization. So it kind of gave me a different perspective on owning a company that maybe other people might not be privy to. 
what I what also want to know is, have you always wanted to be in tech or be an entrepreneur? I can say personally, I've never wanted to be an entrepreneur. So, you know, it is a different skill set to be the business owner as compared to a business practitioner. So what led you or who led you down that path? And when did you believe that you could be a successful tech entrepreneur? So from a tech perspective, I loved IT since fourth grade utilizing basic programming for the first time, you know, being exposed to that. But from an entrepreneur perspective, it was really my mom. My mom was selling everything from Avon to, you know, Mary Kay or whatever. What is that? My mom sold Tupperware. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So um, I always saw that and just how much energy, you know, she really had doing that. And as I really started my career again, I was really blessed again in that my even my previous position before starting this firm, my boss was, you know, the owner of the company that I worked at. And, you know, I just kind of watched how she structured her company and, you know, different things like that. And I just went to her one day and said, you know, wow, you know, I think I could, you know, have my own company. And she really pulled me to the side and was already pushing me that way anyway, telling me, you know, you could really probably do this on your own. You could probably have your own company. And I was, you know, at that time, like, you know, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. But, you know, once she showed me what it looked like, you know, I just kind of was all in, I guess you could say, you know, and just soaked it up. Wow. So, so you've had, not just had mentorship, but you've actually had mentorship from a female entrepreneur in in and of herself. So I'm sure that gave you a different perspective on the vantage point that female entrepreneurs come from. And, and we've done a lot of, had a lot of discussion with female entrepreneurs to date on the Freedom Forum about many of the obstacles that they faced in starting their own business, including lack of funding, finance opportunity, the mentorship that you were exposed to is not always available to female entrepreneurs, and then simply being taken serious in the STEM and tech space. So what um, have been some of the most difficult barriers that you've encountered in starting your own business? And have there been any obstacles that you experienced that you simply believe were because you were a diverse founder my own personal challenge is I'm an, I'm a real IT guy. So I'm a true introvert. I'm a lot more comfortable in front of three or four monitors, you know, working with a computer and being in a room by myself, but owning a company, you cannot be an introvert. You actually have to talk to people. Right. So that was a personal challenge for me from a diverse um, perspective. I think the challenge that many diverse owners would probably suffer from would be if you really look around the black community, all the businesses look the same. Barbershops, beauty salons, restaurants. Why do you see that? Because most black people that own businesses have the same types of business. So that you're going to go the direction that you see everybody else going. But as you go into owning an IT company, Right, you know, right. you don't have very many, you know, examples right, right, to right. look at 
you know, to mentor or pattern your behavior, even your business model, right. you know, after or even talk to about those kind of things. I was just lucky. Again, I come from pretty good pedigree, I guess you could say, from my career in that, you know, I was exposed to guys like the Wayne Patrick, Danny Portiers, Eddie Rivers, Keith Harding. You know, I had those guys and it took me a while to get close enough to them to, you know, really get them to open up with me and be honest with me. But once I got, you know, once they understood that I was serious, yeah. you know, then everybody just kind of opened up and, you know, was honest with me. And I was able to really rely and lean heavily, you know, on those guys to really mentor me. You know, yeah. as I continue down this path, that support system, I believe it what is so lacking in this community. Yeah. So so one of the things you mentioned that you are a true introvert. And I remember talking with Audrey and Akila a couple episodes ago, and they both also mentioned that being a successful entrepreneur means getting out of your comfort zone in so many ways, Absolutely. financially, right? I mean, in your case, getting in front of people and making that pitch or making that ask for mentorship or sponsorship, or just asking about how do you, you know, craft a business model or, you right. know, who will you help mentor me? Like really getting out of your comfort zone, um, in order to be successful. And I can imagine as an introvert, how challenging that must be to go from being the background person to all the way in front, right? Oh, and yeah. the organization. Oh yeah. I remember, um, I think this is 2018. The, uh, any, any recorder gave me an award. It was like entrepreneur of the year, I, I believe. And I literally almost blacked out on that stage, you know, having to, <laughs> have, you know, having to give a speech. And I had Shannon Williams like really encouraging me and, you know, different things. But I mean, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. And I'm now starting to get used to, you know, opening up and talking to people. But imagine that's 2012 when I started this company. I never thought I'd have to really talk to anybody. I was used to you know, right. being in small rooms, talking to people, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable there, but getting in front of an audience, oh right. my God, <laughs> that was tough. I think that's awesome though. I mean, it really speaks to the fears and the challenges that we all face, right? And so that leads me to some, some questions around, back to around your experience as a diverse male, and particularly because just the introvertedness of uh, your your personality is so contrary to so many of the stereotypes of diverse men, particularly African-American and Black men. Mm. So I want you to, to speak to being a diverse male. In most people's minds, you've made it, right? You're the boss. And we just kind of talked about this. That puts you in front, like you're the lead. But in your role, do you still experience so many of the things that I've been speaking with some of the female entrepreneurs that they encounter in uh, microaggressions or discrimination or even maybe more subtle stigmas such as being mistaken for the janitor or the maintenance man? We've talked so many times about being mistaken for the admin or the coffee girl or the, you know, the copy lady or those kind of things. 
do those things happen to you or are you in an environment where you're kind of a little more sheltered and shielded from that kind of behavior? Combination of both. Yes, yeah. I am a little bit sheltered from that in that I have really, really good people around me that even though I'll try to, you know, it's funny because we try to push each other forward. You know, I'm constantly trying to promote, you know, my people around me and, you know, establish their brand and they're constantly pushing me out there. I, I love that about us and our culture. But then as far as the the stigmas, I think where we get kind of caught up in that is I remember very early in my career or very early in the in the company, as we continue to grow really quickly, I had a lot of people coming to us saying, well, well, it must be nice to have that MBE certification. You know, you know, you're growing really fast because of that. And, you know, it took me quite a while to really help people understand that, um, no, we really didn't use an MBE certification. Most small businesses don't care about an MBE certification. They care about value. So right. um, we really focused on creating a true value proposition based on the customers that we serve and sell based on that. Um, it wasn't until, I mean, believe maybe two years later that we even had an MBE certification because now we're chasing enterprise customers and they actually care about, right. you know, leveraging an MBE spend, you know, and even then you still got to talk value. So that's right. <laughs> so I really, that's the stigma, just helping people understand just because you're a black company that's growing, it's not because you're leveraging an MBE spend to chase 15%. So, so that's comparable to, oh, you're, you're an African-American female sitting in this Ivy League school. You must have got some type of... Um, Affirmative oh, action. Uh, <laughs> say yeah. again, say again. Affirmative action, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the only reason you could be sitting in this class. It's not because your company actually delivers value Correct. or your company meets the client's needs in a more cost efficient way than some of the larger shops, right? Yes. That was one of the things that I had to really think about because I had sold for so long on value that I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want people to look at us being an MBE firm and not looking at us as a company that's actually providing value, you know, mm. to the organizations that we serve. But I ultimately began to understand that, yeah, at the end of the day, you know, having an MBE cert allows you, you know, an additional channel or additional opportunity to yeah. maybe open, open doors you still have to provide value and it's actually even more competitive at that point. So um, once I understood that, then, you know, I was totally fine going in there. Yeah. So, so, well, my, let me ask you this because you're, you're speaking to this um, assumption that, Oh, if you're a black owned business or a minority owned business or a diverse owned business, that somehow you are utilizing that, diversity to promote your company in a way that is is unfair to non-diverse companies but you know many people believe and i'm saying this because it's interesting to have that vantage point because from the alternative uh, perspective many people believe that hiring diverse talent or in your case a diverse business 
or a diverse practitioner or a diverse business owner or whatever the case may be inherently reduces the quality of work and value and even their expectations in the work. And as a diverse business owner, I, I'm certain that quality must always be your primary focus. You've, you've mentioned now multiple times how you're all about delivering value. It's not about just you know having a business, but making sure that you are delivering value to your clients and your customers. So how do you combat or overcome some of the biases or stereotypes to ensure that not only when you hire in talent, whether it's diverse or non-diverse talent, talent, that you reiterate your brand and your value as related to quality? I think it comes down to the people first, because ultimately mm. the company is just a brand. It takes the people to really care about the level of quality and you know just attention to detail as you attempt to deliver whatever service or product you're putting out there anyway um, sure. from my perspective and this really goes back to your earlier question there's so much pressure on us not only as a small company in a very very competitive environment but you know understanding that we almost carry the weight of the firms that came before us. So the names I mentioned, the Waynes, the Eddies, you know, the guys that opened the door for me. Um, I understand that I absolutely represent them. Yeah. You know, as I continue to go about doing my business in the community. And the last thing I'd ever want to do is disappoint those guys. And this comes down to even the smallest customers. The thing about this community is it's really small. Right. So it only takes one bad one for everybody to say, oh, man, I heard it's getting bad over there. <laughs> you right, know, right, so, right, right. you know, I don't want, you know, I don't want to embarrass those guys for putting me in, you know, into the game and establishing my brand, nor do I want to be the one to come in the door and let the door shut behind me and somebody else can't make it through. I can't uh, help anyone else because I'm the one that messed it all up. You know, then we try to, just build in quality. As long as I'm caring about it from an ownership perspective, I'm co continually pushing that message downhill, you know, throughout the organization. So I believe when people start just losing track of quality, you're ready to go out of business at that point to yeah. me, <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. And you were one of the first people who has spoken about this kind of inherent um, ancestry or lineage that you have been, you know, entitled to or, or have been the beneficiary of. I certainly know that in my legal capacity, I am absolutely the beneficiary of so many diverse, entre uh, diverse attorneys, in my case, in your case, entrepreneurs, who have paved a path for you, right? That have given their time, talents, and treasures to make sure that you are successful, to give you, you know, insights that you otherwise couldn't have. And I'm the same. I absolutely know that I stand on the shoulders of African-American female and diverse attorneys who have, you know, taken the brunt of a lot of issues that I haven't been privy to 
in yeah. order to allow me to not have to deal with those same things, right? Oh, yeah. and, and and so in, in having that vantage point and that perspective, you, you and I are, are of similar vintage. So I kind of think that is a perspective that our generation holds that may be being lost in some of the younger generations. So I want to talk to you about, you know, managing um, some of the younger generation that are now coming in because um, I, I find myself challenged a lot of times in managing younger attorneys who don't have the perspective that me and you just outlined, that they fully recognize that while certainly they've worked hard and have gone to school and done all the things that are necessary, they are still, even in their own exceptionalism, they still stand on the shoulders of giants. And I don't think they always recognize that in a way that me and you seem to carry with us on a daily basis. You know, how does that affect your management style when you are, you know, dealing with younger generations that I'm certain you deal with as the leader of your organization, when you're looking for recruiting and bringing in qualified new talent, whether they're diverse or non-diverse, mm-hmm. but particularly diverse talent. It's us constantly reminding them and, and making sure that, for instance, I got Wayne Patrick, that's a member of my organization, and I make sure that the diverse talent inside of my company understands who Wayne is and what he's done for us to be here at this position. Right. You know, and Wayne will downplay it and say, oh, you know, he'll he'll try to throw it back to me, right? That's just who he is. But I make sure that those guys know who he is and tell some of the things that he had to go through yeah. for us to be here at this position, at this place, at this time to make sure that they're giving him his flowers. Yeah, you that's know, I right. guess while he's still here and saying thank you, you know, and I make sure that those guys see me continuing to give him his, you know, flowers and paying homage because as the owner of the company, I should always go first, you know, so as if they're seeing me doing it, then you have no reason why you shouldn't, you know, yeah. be doing those same things. And I really feel like that's up to us to make sure that we're continuing to keep that generation as close to us as possible so that we're in a position to be able to help them understand what it says because we can get caught up in our own world too and you know become hard to talk to and not necessarily you know it's not that we're doing it on purpose but we get caught up in our world and we're hard to find or hard to reach so we got to make sure that we're accessible yeah, I appreciate that. I, and I also appreciate that you put the onus on us. It's mm-hmm. not on the young bucks and the newer generation to know who we are or who did who or who did what. It is up to us to teach them who came before us, who laid the path, who had it not been for I wouldn't have the opportunity and you wouldn't have the opportunity. And that means everyone coming after us wouldn't have had the opportunity. And I just had a similar experience with my law firm. Um, We had an opportunity. So many of the diverse associates in in my law firm in the different offices got together. And we were there with Jimmy McMillan, who 
is mm. a known black oh, attorney guy. in this Absolutely. city. He's probably mm. uh, responsible for at least 75 to 85 to 95 percent of black lawyers in Indianapolis getting wow. hired somewhere. But he's not no longer with the firm. And it was important to me that those you know, young lawyers who may not even sit in Indianapolis, may not be in our office, but somehow if you are a black attorney at Barnes and Thornburg, you are a beneficiary of Jimmy McMillan, of Don Roseman, of Alan Mills, Tony Prather, like so many who came before us. And it was important that he was there and kind of, you know, and, 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 and gave his sermon on the Mount, which of course <laughs> continues to bless me, but, right. but more just the history of where right. we have come from. And, you know, because it gets lost and it will mm -hmm. get lost if it's not continued to be repeated and taught and preached. Absolutely. I mean, I, at the end of the day, we can expect more from them than we're willing to give to them. You know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we got to right. we have to teach that. We have to plant those seeds and make sure that they remember. And not only that that we plant the seed to make sure that they know, you know, who did it before them, but make sure that they understand their responsibilities. Now that we've shown you what it took for you to get here, right, here right. are your responsibilities of what you have to do next. To pay it forward to the Correct. people coming after you. Correct. That's exactly right. Correct. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Cummins Inc. Cummins Inc., a global power solutions leader, is proud to partner with IBJ's The Freedom Forum. For Cummins, diversity and inclusion is a core value of our company, and we are committed to creating work environments and communities that are welcoming to all people. Combined with technological innovation, diversity and inclusion is a critical element of Cummins' continued success. It's how we attract and retain top talent and better serve our customers around the world and create stronger communities. We're back with Lamont Hatcher, the CEO at AIS on the Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman, talking about being an entrepreneur of his own tech business and how he ensures to recruit qualified diverse talent that maintains a culture of excellence. I mentioned previously that you had been honored, you know, of late last year and earlier this year as a DEI champion by several organizations for your support and allyship of women in STEM. And as the leader of your organization, I want to know how do you approach diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts within your organization, particularly as a diverse leader yourself? Are there particular programs or focuses that, or even initiatives that you implement or utilize to ensure that women and diverse women are positioned and promoted throughout your organization? Or how do you make sure those things happen? Well, one thing that we've done really for the last three, four, five years, I don't even know, we're a sponsor of Women in High Tech. And I've always leveraged that organization. Number one, some of my really, really good friends, I actually think I met you there, right? But yeah, some of my absolutely. really, really good friends, you know, I've met you know, in that, in that organization, but I use it to find talent, you know, and as I continue to go down the path of growing my organization and looking for 
a particular skill set or just a particular personality or just somebody to lean on or somebody to ask questions about a particular thing. I said at the Christmas party a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm a people collector. So if you know more than me, I, I kind of stay close to you, especially if you know more than me about a particular subject. I'm going to stay close to you. That way I can lean over anytime and say, hey, what do you think about this? And Women of High Tech has given me so much um, in regards to that approach of collecting people. In fact, I have two people that actually, I've had three that worked for me, um, women in leadership positions in my own organization. And my approach to DNI, you know, I really focus a lot on women. You know, you'll see that a lot inside of here. Every, Every woman here leads some in some facet in their particular area. And that's really what I try to push. And it's really two reasons. One, you know, I have a daughter in IT and I'd like to see her in some sort of leadership position at some point. But I also take you back to earlier in our conversation when I told you that it was really a woman that helped yeah. me understand how to really start a company. And this is really my way of paying that forward, you know, on her behalf. You know, she really invested in me. So I want to invest in other women and put them in positions to be able to do the same thing for another Lamont that comes yeah, along. Yeah, 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 absolutely, so absolutely. That's really important. I like how you utilize women in high tech as a mechanism to not only support women, but also utilize it as a uh, opportunity to grow your diverse network. I mean, that's exactly what we talk about so often when we are talking about recruiting and retaining diverse talent is go tap into your diverse networks. And if you're looking for people of color or women or whatever the particular diverse characteristic is, and you don't have that just personally in your network, reach out to diverse networks that have that talent set or that skill set or that person that you're looking for. And so what I'm hearing is that you've utilized women in high tech, the sponsorship, not just to benefit your organization professionally, but also to grow your diverse talent, which mm-hmm. I think is exactly what sponsors hope to do when they sponsor any organization right well, it's, it's funny because i actually said this to another ceo a couple of weeks ago you know if i'm looking for sports i'm not turning to cnn right, you know, right. i'm going to espn <laughs> right so if you're looking for, yeah. right if you're looking for diverse talent then you need to go where the diverse yeah. talent is and look there but if you're gonna look you know on watch cnn i mean i'm quite sure you'll catch a highlight or something every now and then but right that's not what you're looking for you need to go where it's at you and i also um chatted before and mentioned how you are specifically uh purposeful about not just recruiting uh diverse talent but also targeting and identifying diverse talent well before you're actually, you know, ready or maybe even have a position for that particular person. So you and I had talked about, um, or at least had had a chit chat around the idea that I've posed multiple times at this point, 
that we've heard over the course of time from non-diverse people about the challenge of finding and recruiting and retaining diverse talent. And for years, um, you know, diverse people were offended that non-diverse people say, well, we, we just can't find qualified diverse talent. We just can't find them. We can't find them. And I think what we have learned, at least over the course of the last couple of years, is unquestionably qualified, diverse talent in whatever, you know, industry you're looking for is out there. But oftentimes you do have to be a little more strategic, a little more intentional, a little more purposeful about how you go about identifying, targeting, recruiting diverse talent, particularly if you're sitting in the Midwest in Indianapolis and want to recruit talent to the city from other Mm -hmm. geographic locations. Mm -hmm. So women in high tech is one mechanism I know that you've mentioned you use to do that. How do you also, what are other, you know, alternative mechanisms you use to identify qualified diverse talent in a way that allows you to capitalize on that talent when you actually are ready for them and can use them in the company. Yeah, so really it just comes down to, I believe any CEO or director or manager, you know, that's actively engaged, you know, in the operational management of your area or company, you know, you know when you're gonna hire someone or, there's a particular skill set you're looking for, whatever it is you need. So as you begin to craft what that looks like, while I'm crafting it, I'm already beginning to lean toward the organizations like the BDPA or um, the women in high techs. And I'm already identifying people that have those skill sets. So as I'm narrowing down or figuring out what this position looks like i'm also looking at talent in those areas and figuring out how that talent or that skill set how it will provide value because it also you know for me it's given me the ability to in some cases talk to the person that maybe i think i'm gonna hire but talk to them about the position you know or allow them to kind of help me refine what that position really looks like right you know and that's really been a a key driver of growth for us here at AIS I mean leveraging the network to help us get there faster yeah you know put us in the right spot and then we knew when it was the right position that we knew exactly the right person to go get. We had already had this, we were already talking to that person about the right. And so now imagine how fast my onboarding, you know, process is because you already know me, you know, my company, you know, you know exactly what we're looking for out of this position, you know, so I don't need that one year, you know, one year's time to get you ramped up to understand exactly what I'm looking for. I've already been talking to you for three to six months about this position. So now you're just coming in and now we just get to have, you know, better conversations and we're going faster, forward faster. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is you are proactively seeking that diverse personnel, that diverse person, diverse skill set, 
well before a the positions ever opened up or mm -hmm. you know long before you're crafting mm -hmm. a job description Absolutely. you're targeting specific people in order to make sure that that ramp up to find that diverse talent is actually um beneficial and necessary to get to where you're trying to go what i'm finding is people are doing the opposite they've got the job description out or they're getting ready to post it and as a secondhand thought are like oh we need to find some diverse talent which quite frankly in and of itself is steps ahead of where we were 10 and 20 years ago where mm -hmm. finding some diverse talent wasn't even part of the right. equation, right? right? But now we're, we're, I think we've, at least for many people, drilled into the idea that the hiring process should include making sure that you're looking for diverse talent. But I think now what we need, need to get people to understand is if that's the case, you really need to start doing that long before you post the job description because the two to three week or two to four week turnaround time to have a job description publicly is really not enough time necessarily depending on where you are geographically and you know professionally what what skill sets you're looking for etc but that doesn't always allow the necessary amount of time to find qualified, diverse talent that you can get in, you know, in good time to, to, you know, fill the position. And it's two things, right? Because ultimately, you know, I have a position that I'm looking to hire, you know, in the next probably six to eight months. Yeah. But I started having conversations with about three or four different people about that position probably six months ago. Right, right. So as we continue to go forward and go down that path, you know, now we're ready. And, but then here's where, here's where it gives me a competitive advantage. You know, the, at the end of the day, talent, great talent is hard right. to find, whether it's diverse or non-diverse, right. but if I already got you interested in my company, interested in me, interested in, you know, the position, interested in the goals of the position. Now I get, to, I get a chance to talk to better talent than I may not have had access to had I not gotten out ahead of it, you know, right. a lot earlier, you know, right. I can believe that any, any company, no matter what the size, you know, could benefit from that strategy, get out there early because it's competitive unless you want to, you know, pay 20% more for, right, right, for right. you know, right. <laughs> for them and, to be engaged. And you said, get out ahead of it and, and allowing a potential, you know, employee to get to know you, get to know the company, but that also allows you to get to know that employee Correct. or prospective employee and what are their life goals? And is this going to be a fit? And is this going to yes. make sense in their long-term career trajectory right. plan, right? Absolutely. And all that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's the first thing I ask, you know, before you come and come and you take a job with AIS, what are your goals? five right. years from now, what does it look like? And if it doesn't fit, you know, what our goals are in the next five years, I mean, no matter how talented you are, you know, we'll, we'll pass. Let's switch gears a bit with regard to, we've talked about recruiting strategy, particularly recruiting diverse talent. Let's talk about managing, uh, not just diverse talent, but people generally, because, you know, I will admit as a new law firm partner, I'm now tasked with 
much more management and training and mentoring of our junior legal talent, including our diverse IP talent. And, you know, that's a, that's a bit of a stretch from my previous tasks as an associate where I was more the workhorse, right? Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't doing as much management. And, and I must tell you, there are days where I find myself longing for the ability just to go back and do my work and not have to worry about, you know, all the other issues that come with managing people. And I've known this for years. I was a scientist before I became an attorney. And as scientists, we used to give, talk a lot of mess, should I say, about <laughs> the scientists who got promoted to manager, but really didn't have the skill set, you know, to deal with managing people as compared to managing an experiment or to right. in your industry, you know, dealing with the tech as oh, yeah. compared to the the people. Oh yeah. Um go ahead, go ahead. No, I'm saying it's a totally different skill set. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally different skill set. It again, you're CEO, you're the leader, you're the boss. So have you ever had an opportunity where you had to fire or let go of a diverse associate or simply cut them off? Maybe just cut ties like this is just not working out. And if so, did that weigh heavy on you? You know, it's funny. You start a company and it's just you, right? Then you look up and it's you got somebody else in there, you know, and now I'm looking, I think, what is it? 22, it'll be 10 years, you know, and now I look at each individual employee as a family, you know, they have family members, they have mortgages or rents or college tuitions and right. bills, you know, right. and as CEO, it's my job to ensure that all those things are handled appropriately. So when it comes to an employee that has gotten to that point where, you know, we need to cut ties or let somebody go, um, diverse or non-diverse, I don't, it, 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 I don't lose sleep over it because ultimately, as I see it, you are impacting the other 24 families right, you right. Know, that I have to take care of inside of your organization. So it's my job to make sure that that happens. And if you are in the way of that, you know, I'll, I will make that move fairly quickly and won't lose sleep over it. It's OK. We yeah. hopefully we can be friends tomorrow. But as of today. Right. You know, we got to go a separate, separate direction. Do you, I mean, again, you're the, you're the boss, you're the leader. So do you think that it is a bit easier? Maybe it's easier. Maybe it's more difficult um, to be able to make the decision to fire or let go of diverse talent. That's not working out because you have the perspective to know that the boss or the, the leader of your organization is not going to hold such a failure, you know, against any other diverse person. In, in other words, what I'm saying is you are a black man who leads your company. I would suspect that whether you hire another black male or black female who would come in and not be successful 
wouldn't damage or taint the opportunity for a subsequent black male or female to come into AIS and be successful. Mm -hmm. However, that is not always the case for so many companies, right? right? And I'll take my law firm or any law firm, quite frankly, for example, where there are few enough black attorneys or diverse attorneys or female attorneys or whatever kind of, you know, non uh, a diverse, diverse characteristic you want to describe, there are few enough of us that should one of us fail, and we do all the time, right? People leave law firms and leave right. positions all the time. Um, but should we leave under circumstances that are any other than stellar, at least I hold the vantage point that it somehow does taint or make it more challenging for another diverse person to come in that same, you know, organization and not have that kind of stench, you know, that they have to wade through. How would you suggest to other organizations that may not have the um, ability to have such a fair perspective, given their diverse, you know, you're a diverse man, how would you suggest or advise other companies to address, you know, failures by diverse people such that it doesn't present an obstacle or barrier for other people coming down the road? For me personally, I know for absolute sure I have been passed over for positions that I was absolutely qualified for because an organization was still kind of healing, you know, or recuperating or whatever you want to call it <laughs> from a failure of a previous black female. Wow. So that is real and it, it's not fair and it's not yeah. right, but I do think it's real. So how, how do you deal with that? And if you don't have to deal with that, how would you suggest other organizations who are less diverse deal with those kind of circumstances, which of course happen every day? I believe I'm a the traditional servant leader anyway. So I internalize everything. It's all my fault ultimately yeah. anyway. So if I bring you in and it's really not working, it's my fault, you know? So I'm gonna try every approach, you know, whether you're a diverse, you know, employee or a non-diverse employee, I'm gonna try every approach possible to figure out how to make this work. Ultimately, right. it was my decision, you know, and I, I feel like I'm always right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I'm always right. So why am I not right this time? You right, know, right, so I'm going right. to try to figure out every approach to try to make this right. But if it just doesn't work, I can then look at you and say, you know what? It's not me, it's you, you know, and be okay with that. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're diverse or non-diverse, you know, we're all going to make mistakes and maybe it fit then and it doesn't fit now, you yeah. know, but, you know, you can't look at that person as, well, you know, we didn't gave, you know, the diverse can this diverse employee, you know, an opportunity did or did not work out, it's not because they're diverse. It's just 
did or did not work out. So right. just continue to give more diverse candidates more opportunities. You know, it's unfortunate to hear your story about, you know, how you were looked over or passed over for a position. Yeah, I mean, it's real. And it un- unfortunately, it's not novel. Like if you talk to most black females or most diverse women, I would suspect not always, uh, you know, and even in my career, it's only happened once, but it was a big once, right? Like it was a big opportunity. And so that stays with you. I mean, those things yeah, do, do you know, k- present scars and bruises and pain that you, you know, you shake off and you keep going, but you don't forget that. Right. Yeah. And you don't ever know if the next opportunity or the next organization or the next CEO is going to have that same vantage point. So, you know, I think as diverse people, especially professionals and practitioners, I certainly carry the burden that my, I I would never want my failure to prevent someone else from an opportunity, right? right? I am always conscientious that even if I fail personally, that I don't ever want it to be able to be represented as anything other than Angela failed, not, you know, all black females, all women, all whatever it could be, you know, whatever the stereotypical bias can be. And, and, you know, admittedly and for good or for bad, you know, I've worked hard to make sure that there's not too many F's associated with my name for that very reason. So that is a real burden that I think a lot of diverse professionals carry. But in reality, there are going to be good, diverse, talented people, just like there are going to be good, non-diverse, talented people. And there are going to be people who are non-diverse, who are not great skill sets, who are not great fits for the company. And, you know, when you come across those one or two diverse people who are not don't have the best skill set or are not the best fit for the company, they shouldn't be the rule for everyone else that comes after. Right. Do you teach your kids what we're talking about right now, about the pressure that they have to feel every day going into their careers that they have to outperform? Yeah you know, their counterparts. Yeah. You know, and if so, do you feel that we're kind of keeping the cycle going? Going. Yeah. You know, by doing so. So, you know, that is such a good question. And it is a ongoing debate. So the the your question to me posed differently is I have been taught as a child, I think you have to that we as diverse people have to work twice as hard to get half as far, right? Mm -hmm. I was taught that my whole life. I don't know if you've heard it like that or if you've heard it in a different perspective, in a different way, but most diverse people, particularly most Black and African-American people, particularly those who are successful, Mm -hmm. have been taught either explicitly, because I was taught explicitly. My mom said it over and over and over to me, you know, just repeatedly, (laughs) that you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. That's just, so in any capacity, any industry, any professional capacity, if you have managed to gain some, you know, menial level of success, whatever that is, as a diverse person, typically 
it's just understood that you've had to work harder. You've had to overcome more barriers. You've had to, you know, outdo, outwit, outplay, you know, your counterparts, whatever the case may be. And so your question, Lamont, is, are we perpetuating that cycle by teaching that same thing to our kids? And I will tell you, I absolutely teach it to my son. And Mm -hmm. for good or for bad, I just don't believe. And, you know, some people will say, well, Angela, you're a big law attorney. Yeah, yeah, I'm all that. But (laughs) I don't believe that we are at a place yet, and I certainly don't believe it now, given the last four to six years, that we are at a place where the playing field is truly level and fair. And that playing field being truly level and fair will be exemplified when a Black person, Black female, diverse female, diverse person can come into an organization and straight up fail, do a face plant, as somebody said, you know, and still be able to get up and have a fair shake and go on. Typically, if diverse people in any high professional, you know, level make a serious mistake, like, you know, professionally or economically, truly a big mistake, their jobs are on the line. And typically they're not going to recover. That's not the same for our non-diverse counterparts who do have the opportunity on repeated levels to make serious mistakes and still be able to recover and go on with their career, get some mentoring, get some coaching and go on in a way that a diverse person typically doesn't have the opportunity. If they make a mistake like that, they will be looking for another job. So Mm -hmm. my vantage point is until that's not the case, if I tell my son or teach my son that he can just go out and, you know, play at the same level or perform at the same level and get the same rewards and benefits, I think that's doing him a disservice. I just mm-hmm. don't think that's the reality. That's yeah. my long-winded answer. What, what, what's your thoughts on No, that? I mean, I, I agree. I actually teach my daughter the same thing, and I feel like this. What's the worst that can happen? Exactly. She'll have strong work ethic. And she'll show up for work every day, ready to outwork everybody in the organization. If if the playing field is level, then she'll just go even faster. Exactly. So I I just wanted to, you know, get look at it from a different perspective and get your thoughts on that. Well, it's an excellent question. And it remains up for debate debate because, you know, I have been exposed to one of my um, dear colleagues from Lily, Asira uh, Virial, PhD, um, and, and we had her on a women in high tech panel years ago, probably about three, four years ago, and she fully disagreed with that whole vantage point. She was like, why in the world would you work twice as hard? You're not getting paid and you're not getting paid twice as much. You're not getting twice the bonus. You're not. Why would you do that? And and I understand that too. I understand that perspective. I just, unfortunately, and of course, you know, twice as hard versus working more is, you know, it is probably an exaggeration. But the point is, I just don't think we are at a point, and, and not that it's fair or right, 
I don't agree that it's fair or right, but I just don't think we are at a point yet where diverse people can just assume that if they do perform at the same level as their non-diverse counterparts, they will be treated fairly and equally as the, they're just too many examples. I can just go talk to my friends and come up with, you know, two handfuls of examples of them telling me how that absolutely doesn't work in this organization, at this level, at the, you know, like at this title, whatever the case is. So I just don't think we're there yet. I do believe that, it, you know, and we have to believe that at some point in time, it'll level set. I right. don't think it's our generation where we'll really see that. You know, I thought our generation was closer to it than any any generation. I mean, several years ago, I really did think that we were getting much closer to a point where my children and your children would have a much better opportunity where they'd be in a world where it's a lot less about color and race and ethnicity. And unfortunately, I think with the political climate of the last, you know, four to five years, we've just absolutely done a reversion where, you know, I think things have gotten significantly worse, not better. Yeah, yeah I do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't feel like it's gotten worse. I feel like it's a little bit more hidden, um, but I wouldn't say worse. I've talked to Wayne before and I was listening to him talk about, you know, really being one of the first black IT firms here in Indy. Now I can look around and I see there are four or five very successful, diverse firms, you know, here in Indy. Um, and then I look at myself coming along and, you know, having increased access to these guys, you know, and when I hear their stories, yeah, their yeah. stories don't compare to oh, my stories. Absolutely so not. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't compare, in my mind, it's getting better. Yeah, I, I, I understand that vantage point. And from that vantage point, I don't think there's any question. Like, I would not, I, I don't mean things are getting worse to say that there are not plenty of opportunities for, there are plenty of opportunities. And I think probably more than there have ever been. Mm -hmm. But I do also think that there has been an increase in just straight up blatant racism, discrimination, outright bigotry in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. And yeah. I grew up in little, you know, little Appalachian country town where, you know, you would expect there to be burning crosses and N-word all the time. And I never experienced any of that. And I'm experiencing more of that now, not me personally, right? But just being exposed to just more of that now than I ever had back at home or even, you know, growing up and going to college and just all the experiences I've had. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't think those two things are in isolation. I think they are right. absolutely happening concurrently. And it is a function of the disparity between our professional worlds and our personal world. You know, I find myself encouraging people in my professional life is to really buy into diversity on a personal level, not just a business model, right, right. but personally, you know, engage with your Jewish friend or your, you know, your Iranian colleague and learn more about their religion and their culture and their food and 
you know, and those are the things that I think draw us closer together and kind of break down so many of those imaginary barriers that we put mm-hmm. up between each other that kind of keep us, I don't know, separate and distant and willing to see differences versus the, the similarities. I focus so much on my scientific background and the, the similarities we are genetically, mm-hmm. yet we focus on all the differences that are so so minuscule compared to, you know, the similarities. Y'all just experienced a holiday of whatever, you know, got to spend time with family and friends, tried to stay healthy and successful and relax a little bit. I mean, we all just had a common experience in whatever way we celebrate, right? That is such a great perspective to look at. As as we uh, come to a close, Lamont, I want to ask, For you to drop some knowledge on us from the vantage point of, again, a diverse male business owner with regard to some tools or tips or resources that you would advise any person, particularly diverse people, but any person interested in starting their own business or being a leader in their organization, whether it's in tech or otherwise, what, what would be some of your best pieces of advice? Number one, nothing replaces the work. There are no shortcuts. You know, I was um, meeting with a young lady that's got a IT company here right before we did this podcast. And I asked her, how many hours a week do you work? And she said 70. And I said, yeah, sounds about right. There's nothing that can replace the work. Number two, recognize what you're good at and find people that are better at the things that you aren't so good at and connect with them. Three, be prepared to come out of your shell. You can only (laughs) tell to your friends for about a year. And after that, you got to go find someone to actually sell whatever it is you're, you know, selling, whether it's a product or a service. Your your friends only have so much money. They're not going to continue to buy your stuff. You know, you got to find other people that are absolutely interested in whatever it is that you're selling and continue to refine your value proposition of whatever that is around that group of people. Yeah. That's really the advice. Surround yourself with really good people. Yeah. If I was to add on to that, that's really ultimately what it comes down to because so much of this is about timing and it's impossible to be in two places that, one time so you need someone that cares about you to be in one place while you're in another place to ensure that you know hey maybe you're somewhere where the opportunity isn't but maybe someone else is where the opportunity is it's it all comes back to people yeah so uh, not just people though certainly good people you made that Mm -hmm. clear and hard work and i think that is something that People say hard work all the time. And I, I, because I'm a person and I know you are too, who works ridiculously hard. Mm, And, you know, people say hard work and you're just like, oh yeah, we work hard. And I'm like, no, this is kind of another level of hard work. Like this is, yeah. And I, I, I think that people don't always respect the hustle until they're in it. And they are working 60 and 70 hours. And that's when you learn whether what you're doing is truly something you're passionate about and truly genuinely care about, 
or if it's just work. You know, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Nobody ever sees what it takes to get there. They only see right. the end, you know, when you're holding up your hands in, in victory or a success. Right. Speaking for myself, up in the middle of the night working and people, you know, everybody's knocked out and you're the one up working. Nobody sees that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The holidays, you know, Absolutely. the weekends, you know, I tell everyone I, I work every day. Yeah. So if you're not willing to work every day, if you're not willing to commit you know, that huge portion of your life and make all the sacrifices necessary to win, not just for yourself, but for your family, your employees, their families. You know, if you're not willing to make those sacrifices, don't do it. Stay so, so Lamar, let me let me ask you one final question on this note, because I've heard a lot recently and it, it was a phenomenon when I kind of started um, in law and it faded away and it seems to be kind of making a resurgence is this work-life balance idea. You, you talked about if you're not willing to work all the time. Well, I, I I can tell you, I can point out about three people I know right now who'd be like, I'm not, no, I'm not willing to work all the time. I'm not willing to. So what constitutes a reasonable amount of work? And I know this changes with every industry and every level. I, I get that. But just generally speaking, and particularly for I would say those, again, who are looking to potentially be business owners or entrepreneurs, what is a reasonable amount of work? So here's my perspective on work-life balance. I think it's a great concept, (laughs) but I think the quality of life depends on the amount of work you're willing to invest in it. So. For me, I have goals, not necessarily company goals, but personal goals as well. So those personal goals require me to do more work. I understand that for some people, I was talking to some friends about this and I was like, you know, success is a very relative statement. You know, at the end of the day, the company this year, I believe will finish around, you know, five, close to six million. Okay, cool. And everybody's like, oh, you know, wow, that's success. No, you know, not to me, you know, we still got a lot more work to do, but there's someone somewhere saying, oh, wow, if I can just hit 500,000, you know, that'll be great for me. There's no judgment there either. Right. It's just that the things that they'll be able to do at those numbers and the things that I can do and that my employees can do and their families can do being their quality of life is going to be totally different. Yeah. So work-life balance, I mean, it just comes down to the trade-off. Ultimately, you know, there's a trade-off on both sides, right? If you want to, you know, do more things, okay, do more work. You know, if you you want to focus more on life experiences and not so much, those things don't involve money and you don't want to work as much, then don't work as much. You know, so that's a... That's a big fight, even inside my own company. You know, like I said, I'm 70, you know, really about 80 hours a week. So while it would be nice if everyone inside here worked like me, I also understand that everyone's not going to do things the way I do them. Right. And there are trade-offs. Yeah. I don't understand that concept, but I mean, I'll embrace it the best way I can. I don't know if there is any like set 
amount of hours you have to, you know, undertake to achieve success because I only know how to work really hard to win. That's all I want to do is win. So if it requires me to, you know, work 24 hours a day for three days straight, that's what I'll do. Yeah. You know, and my family knows that full, you know, very well. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I will make those sacrifices because I want to win. We had uh, chatted and mentioned, you know, for perfectionism is not um, <laughs> is not healthy necessarily. Yeah. But, but it's something I think I certainly suffer from and having the ability to be the person who is willing to work what by any means necessary, whatever has to get done. And also working with people who clearly that is not, that's not it. Like they're going to work until they think it's done or until their little time is up and they're done. And whatever it is at that point, that <laughs> that's yeah. what it is. And, you yeah. know, and, and being able to work with all the different personality types and, and organizational types and character types in order to get, you know, to a final project and success, whatever that is in your mind, it is, yeah. is often a challenge. Um, what I try to do internally is understand people's boundaries and respect that as much as possible. I see both sides of that spectrum and I try to just respect the other one. Yeah. That's the best. Well, you seem point. like you have, you've got it pretty well worked out, Lamont. You've got a pretty no. good grasp on, you know, what is necessary and what's not necessary, quite frankly, to be successful in a way that allows not just you, but your team to win, the people who've come before you to be honored and respected, and the people who come after you to be positioned in a, a better, you know, a better position than we were coming in. And I think as a working person, you know, trying to make your mark on this industry and this professional world and our personal lives, that's really all we can expect from each other and ourselves, right? Um, one of the reasons why I appreciate you, why I wanted to have you on is because I, resp- I I appreciate your hustle. I appreciate what you positioned yourself to do, what your company's been able to do, and what you stand for in the trenches of doing all that. And I think, you know, that is what so many people in our community need to see more often is diverse entrepreneurs and business owners who have figured it out and are able to leverage their positioning and opportunities to not only help themselves, but also help the people who come before them and the people who are coming after them. With that, I'm going to thank you. Do you have any final comments before we end this session? I'd certainly like to hear any final words. Yeah, well, let me just say to you first, I absolutely appreciate the compliment. And don't be fooled. I have not figured it out. <laughs> I appreciate what you're doing here. You know, I, people asking me to do podcasts and just different things. As I said, I'm an introvert. I really don't want to, you know, be out talking to people, but I appreciate what you're doing um, and just keep doing what you're doing. Because even before I knew, you know, who you were, 
I saw the difference you were making. I could see, you know, your hustle, as you said, I could see exactly what you were trying to do. And I want to make sure that I support you in that endeavor in any way I can. So I appreciate you having me on today and, and just continuing to be an avid supporter of me and my organization. Thank you again for being the first male guest on the Freedom Forum. You have been an awesome guest. It's been an awesome conversation and an excellent way to end 2021 on a a note of um, leveraging opportunity, leveraging our diverse networks, our mentors, and our protégés in order to make sure that, you know, our central Indiana business continues to uh, be more equitable and provides opportunities for all who are interested in being here and contributing to our mm-hmm. community. So thank you again, Lamont. Mm-hmm. Happy holidays to thank you and yours. And I will certainly see you in 2022, if not before. Thank you again to Lamont Hatcher. And thanks to you for joining us on this episode of IBJ's The Freedom Forum with Angela B. Freeman. And thanks to Cummins Inc. for sponsoring the podcast. Please come back next month in 2022 for another conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Central Indiana business community.